we have been working our way through the book of Ephesians on Sunday morning. We did take a break for a while, but uh, we've come back to that. And so just to bring us up to speed, because it's been so long, uh, by way of reminder, you'll remember that Ephesus, uh, again, the, the letter to the Ephesians was in the town of Ephesus. And uh, Ephesus was in that day, it was known as Asia. Today, it's known as modern day Turkey. And uh, it was a uh, a, a pagan uh, Gentile town. Uh, There's only a few Jewish people in the town at that time. And just to let you know that Jerusalem was about 500 miles away and the world was not a melting pot like it is today. So the Jewish people were predominantly there in, in Israel. And then this was uh, the pagan Gentiles. And so there wasn't a lot of crossover. There were a few people, but, but again, it was mostly a pagan town. And in that town, the God that they worship was known as Artemis or Diana. And uh, when you see her, she's always depicted with a bow and arrow and a crescent moon on her head. And so when you go up a little closer, you'll see that it looks like a, a horns, but it's actually a crescent moon. Very interesting, by the way. There is another religion that is there in modern day Turkey that is also even today symbolized by a crescent moon. And we might talk about that when we get into Ephesians chapter six. But Artemis, also known as Diana, was the goddess of fertility, sexual fulfillment, long life, seduction. And as we've said so many times before, uh, worship of her was very erotic. And you can look that up and, and see what I mean by that. But when you we think of the pagan gods that they worshiped in those days, those gods didn't really care about the people that worshiped them. It was a relationship of appeasement. You were certainly never part of their family. But what you would do is you would go to that God and you would sacrifice and you would pray and you would pay and you would promise in hopes, first of all, to maybe get a prayer answered. And if you appeased them enough, then, then the thought was maybe they would do something for you. But the real hope in this relationship of appeasement was that if you sacrifice to them enough, hopefully they wouldn't send an earthquake or destroy all of your crops. But that's the kind of relationship it was. So when Paul the Apostle arrives there in Ephesus, he begins to talk about a very different God, the God that he talked about. This God saw his people as his children, as his family, people that he loved. And because he loved them and they were family, he wanted to provide for them and he wanted to bless them. It was an entirely different relationship. So he spends three years there, and as he leaves there, about five years later, he writes back the letter that we know as Ephesians. And so when he begins the letter of Ephesians, he reminds them at the very beginning, and I put this there on your outline, and it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And so many hold that the theme of Ephesians is that God has blessed us and he wants to bless us and that's the God that we serve. So we've been traveling through this, this book and there's six chapters and we've made it all the way through five and a half of those chapters. And then last week as we came back to Ephesians, I mentioned that the passage that we are looking at is referred to in commentaries as the hinge, the hinge in Ephesians. Based upon your church background, your, denomin your denominational background typically, 
you will read this passage and the, the rest of the book in a certain way. So if your, your church background is one way, you're gonna read it like this. And if your church background is another way, you're gonna read it like this over here. And, and, and so uh, I realized that there are a number of church backgrounds here and that we all have these deeply rooted concepts, beliefs, things that we've picked up through the years. So we're gonna go today through this hinge passage and then we're going to move on. And I wanna say on the front end that there should be something here today to offend just about everyone. <laughs> just so you know that on the front end. So again, if I say something and, and you go, I don't agree with that, and after the service, you're pretty angry. You pass it in, I really disagree with you. Just know, as always, I'm going to say, Okay, I, I, I'm not to pick a fight, I'm just sharing some perspective, but different people will disagree. Even if we disagree, even if we disagree, it's important for us to at least consider and try to understand how people who love Jesus just as much as you do uh, read the same Bible that you read, and yet sometimes they come away with some very different conclusions. I believe it's important to seek first to understand and then to be understood. So if nothing else, maybe, maybe some, some understanding today. But today's going to be a little bit controversial. Are you up for a little controversy today? Yes. Well, we will see, won't we? <laughs> so again, um, this is the hinge, chapter 5, verse 18, and it says, do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So last week, we skipped over the first part where it says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is, in my translation, it would say dissipation. Um, and I said that we would come back and at least uh, mention that today. So here, here's what I would wanna say. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. In the Bible, Wine was always seen as a blessing that, give, that God gave with a caution, with a caution. So let me just share a few verses on the screen. So in Psalm 104, it says, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that they may bring forth food from the earth and wine, the Hebrew word there is yayin, uh, which makes man's heart glad. And just know that in the Bible, drunkenness was beyond what makes a man's heart glad. So it wasn't the first sip. It was somewhere beyond making the heart glad. Yain, uh, yain uh, would be intoxicating. Now, the reason we know this is because the first time that wine is mentioned in the Bible... In the Bible, there is what's called the principle of first mention. Anytime it's mentioned, when something's mentioned first, it's always significant. So there in Genesis chapter nine, it says that Noah, Noah drank of the wine, the word there's yayin, and became drunk and uncovered himself inside of his tent. So we would look on and we would say that Noah had a wee bit too much and then maybe just a fraction more. So... But one of the things that we find, wine here was intoxicating, and, and yet, very interestingly, uh, it was required in the daily sacrifice in the worship of God. So there on, on, on the screen it says, now this is what you shall offer on the altar. 
And there shall be one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of beaten oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine, yain, uh, for a drink offering with one lamb. So a, a hen uh, was a measurement of about a gallon and a half. So what they had to offer to the Lord in the morning and in the evening sacrifice was something a little more than a third of a gallon of wine. The question would be, if it was so wrong, why did God require it to, as, as part of the daily worship? Because the people were required then to grow the grapes, they were required to make the wine, and then they were required to offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. And then what you find is that God commanded that the priests were to take the first and the best part for their own use. Notice it says, all the best, all the best of the fresh oil and the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. So the priests were to take the, the first and the best. Now in Isaiah, God tells his people, he says this, the Lord of hosts, the Lord, will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. So here, not only will Jesus drink it, but he's going to make it for his people for a banquet. When you study church history, one of the things that you'll find is that the use of wine was never an issue throughout uh, church history up until about 200 years ago. So for instance, Martin Luther, from which the Lutherans come from, said about his wife, Catherine, that what he loved about her the most was the beer that she made. Now, I, I know some of you are like, Lutherans. <laughs> Others of you are like, hey, Lutherans. Be that as it may. So John Calvin, from where we get Calvinism, Presbyterians, we come from John Calvin, uh, he, his church provided for him as part of his annual compensation 250 gallons of wine so that he could have a merry heart and those who were with him would also have a merry heart. And I just want to say for you Calvinists out there, you are way behind in taking care of your pastor. So. <laughs> John Calvin, John Calvin said that those who enjoy wine feel a livelier gratitude to God. They didn't see drunkenness as a glass of wine. Drunkenness was something that was beyond having a merry heart. I know in many of our church circles, it's like even a sip would be anathema. When the pilgrims first came to America, many are surprised to find that the first building, you know, they, they left the, the old world, we would say, in order because of religious persecution. And many are surprised to find that the first building that they built was not a church, it was a brewery to make beer. Now, they did have church in the brewery, but it was built as a brewery first. Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Okay. So Charles Spurgeon, we would say famous uh, English Baptist pastor of the 1800s there in England. He would drink beer, wine, and brandy, and 
He smoked cigars. Now, he did die when he was 58 years old. <laughs> Rumor is that he did die happy. So how do you want to do that? So, so when you, you look at the history and, and what the Bible actually says. So I, I put there on your outline. And by the way, I put those verses in case you want to look those up later. But if you look at the old um, at the old translations, like the King James Version, it would say, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. It just means if you get drunk, you've had too much is the idea. If you take Webster's Bible translation from 1833, he said, and do not, and be not drunk with wine in which is excess. Being drunk is too much. If you take the literal translation it would say, and do not be drunk with wine, which is wastefulness. Again, another way of saying it's, it's too, too much. If you take the Catholic translation, the Dewey Reams translation, it would say, and, do, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is luxury. So it's just, it's just too much. How many of your Bibles say, do not be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation? Uses the word dissipation. Okay. When you go home today, look up the word dissipation. Dissipation means to dissipate to dissipate, and it means excess. That's all it means. How many of your Bibles have the word debauchery? Okay, go home today and look that up. Debauchery just means too much. You've had too much is, is all that it means. So what happened that churches, many churches began to say, well, nobody can ever have wine. It's a horrible sin and all that. Well, it was about 200 years ago where some well-meaning believers began to look at the church landscape and they realized that some people abused. And so they concluded that because some abused, no one should use. And that form of legalism began to spread through the church. And in many places, it became the litmus test of who was spiritual and who was not spiritual. And in some places, who was saved and who was not saved. Some even tried to take the word wine from the Bible and say that it really just meant grape juice. Now, how many of you have ever heard something like that? Okay. So one of my mentors early on, Chuck Missler, would say, if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. <laughs> but in order to get the data to confess that, it, that wine was really Grape, uh, was actually grape juice, you're going to have to really torture the data to get that confession. Guys, there is a reason why no English Bible has ever translated the word wine as, as grape juice, because you can't translate it that way. Does that make sense? Yes. So you say, well, so why is it that churches only have grape juice um, when they do communion? And, and uh, well, you might be surprised to find that there was a man in 1869, his name was Thomas Welch. He was a Methodist man from Michigan. And he thought that Christians should not drink wine in any way whatsoever, not even in communion. So to put an end to that, he began to do some research and he found, as they all do, that, that grape juice naturally ferments. And so uh, Tom Welch began to, as he researched, he found that if you pasteurized the grape juice, um, it would not then turn to wine. It wouldn't ferment. Uh, and so prior to that time, 
all churches used wine in communion because it just turned to, to wine. So originally, Welch only sold his Welch's grape juice to churches. And it would be several decades later that other people caught on and they began to purchase Welch's grape juice. How many of you did not know that until today? Good. All right, we're going to close in prayer. We're done. So, so I would suggest to you that in the Bible, having a glass of wine is never an issue, but being drunk is always an issue. In the Bible, uh, drunkenness is somewhere beyond having a merry heart. So I don't see alcohol as an issue. Now, I, I wouldn't tell you that I would never have a, a glass of wine or something like that, because I would. I would. We don't, our, our family and our family, our family position is moderation, not abstinence. Now, some here today and uh, some, some of my, my good friends, they've come to the place where they realize they can never under any circumstance ever have even a taste of anything alcoholic. And so that's good. They, they, they know that. And that's, that's important. So, you know, never trying to talk anybody out of that because they, they, they realize. I would say a couple of things. First of all, if you're single, this is just some wisdom here. If you're single, if I were single, I would never allow alcohol to be part of dating life. And the reason for that is um, my aunt, Auntie Lee, as we called her, she would say, you never let alcohol become part of your dating life because although candy is dandy, liquor is quicker. And so you just want to be careful with that. If you don't get that, it's probably best. But <laughs> if you're under the age of 21, then it's illegal. It's illegal. So, so, so don't. So, um, so let me just say this. You know, we've been here now 26 years. And one of the things you've heard me say before, when I go to a restaurant in town, um, when, as soon as I walk in, I can always tell uh, who comes to Calvary and what their church background is. So one time I walk into this restaurant, vivid memory, three guys are sitting at the bar. They all have bottles of beer. I come walking in and they see me and they hold up their bottles of beer and they go, Pastor Dan, like this. (laughs) Yep, there's my Lutheran, Catholic, and Presbyterian friends. Good for you, good for you. And they have freedom, that's good. Now, those are great. But the ones who are the most fun when I walk into a restaurant are those of you who come from another church background. And I know who you are and I know your church background because as soon as I walk in the restaurant, you have that deer in the headlight look (laughs) because you're sitting there with your spouse and you're having a drink and the pastor has just walked in and you are horrified. And you think I don't see what you do. You take that little stand-up menu and build a little tent for your drink. And when you think I'm not looking, because you think I care, you think I care. Well, I don't, but here's what I will tell you. When I see that, I still run up to your table and go, aha! Not that I care, I just love to see that look on your face. 
So let me give you a verse. Let me give you a verse. Uh, in First Peter, here's what Peter says. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves for God. Now, now, some hold that what was perfectly acceptable under the Old Testament law with its rules, rituals, regulations, has somehow under freedom that we have with the gospel become sort of this impardonable sin. And I, I would not hold that. So if you have a drink and you have the freedom to do that, that's fine. Use wisdom. Use your freedom as a bond servant to God and don't use it as a covering for sin. And so that's what each person has to discern. And uh, so don't be a drunk is, is what it says. So far, so good? Okay, so that's the first part. Now we're gonna shift gears and go to the next part. So last week we talked about uh, what being filled with the Spirit, how that manifests in our lives. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine. And then it goes on, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. So how does that look? Well, verse 19, this is what it looks like. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So we said that's what it looks like when we're filled with the Spirit. That's how that manifests in our life, what comes out of us. Now in Galatians, Paul said it like this, but the fruit, the outcome, the manifestation of the Spirit is love, that word is agape, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, uh, the word there is pistis, which means faith, self, gentleness, self-control, against which there is no law. So that's what that looks like. So let me just highlight a couple of these things, and then we'll move through. The fruit of the Spirit is love. The word there is agape. Being filled with the Spirit means that you will love the things that God loves. You will love God's people, some of those who are a bit of a challenge at times. You will love what God is doing, and that would just be your passion. You're going to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Uh, it says joy, not happiness. Happiness is based upon happenings, happenings. Joy is something that you can have in the midst of some very difficult situations. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Again, the word there is apistis, which just means faith. And when it says faithfulness, your Bible takes it from the old English. In the original, it meant full of faith. Now when we say faithfulness, we tend to think of allegiance, but it literally means to be full of faith. The idea is if you are filled with the Spirit, you will be trusting God in every area of your life. Then it goes on to say gentleness and then self-control, self-control. There's lots of talk in our world today about what being filled with God's Spirit looks like. Some would suggest, because verse 18 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, they would say that being filled with the Spirit looks a lot like being drunk with wine. I would not hold that, that position. Uh, it doesn't seem that, that that's what they're indicating, because Jesus was the most Spirit-filled man who ever lived, and... Um, and uh, so being filled with his spirit should make me look a lot more like Jesus. So when it says self-control, I would hold that it would give me a greater self-control. Sometimes being filled with God's spirit, like when you talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that can 
manifest in our lives as being somewhat overwhelming. How many of you have ever heard of someone called D.L. Moody? D.L. Moody. So D.L. Moody describes when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit as he was walking down the street, he just felt God's power come upon him. And it was so overwhelming, he had to find the first house that he can find that he knew who lived in the house. He goes to the door and says, I need a room. I need a room. And uh, he goes into a room. And for several hours, he was incapacitated, you might say, as God's presence was coming upon him. So that sometimes happens. That sometimes happens. But by and large, being filled with the Spirit is going to give you greater self-control. There is an area of this that we don't typically talk about, but, but maybe we should. And it's this, being filled with the Spirit will manifest in our daily life by being more self-controlled. And that would mean we're not controlled by other things that could be destroying our lives. There's much in Christianity, many, many programs, um, that, and they're, they're great. We love those programs. The starting point always needs to be the filling of the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit empowering that causes me to have self-control, that is to not be controlled by the things that, that are destroying my life. Does that make sense? And, and many, many programs skip that and go on to other things. I would say just, just consider that. So last week we focused in on how being filled with the Holy Spirit would manifest in our lives. And we talked about the event. We call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And so he's telling those who had been baptized in the Holy Spirit now to be filled. They were called to be continually filled. And so the idea is that is not a one-time event, but we're called to be perpetually filled and, and so what I wanted to do just very quickly is just give us a couple of thoughts and then next week we'll pick up and we'll, we'll start moving forward. This is not on your outline, but I've learned in my life that I need to be continually filled with God's spirit because I leak, I leak. I, I view my life as like a bucket and there's a hole in the bottom and uh, I need to be filled because as I'm going through the world and, and all that, that's out there, I just, I just need to keep being filled because I leak in that. I don't, don't know that there's a better way to say that. So um, sometimes, and you want to write this down, sometimes uh, to be filled, you know, continually filled, I need to repent and renounce. I need to repent and renounce. Uh, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter four, we looked at it some time ago. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And here's what it means to grieve. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. So these are the things that grieve the Holy Spirit. And we can't really be filled with, this, with God's Spirit if we're doing things that grieve the Holy Spirit. When it says, do not grieve the Spirit, um, to grieve means to make sad or to make him mourn. I grew up in a church tradition when this was taught. You always felt that grieving the Holy Spirit meant that you were really making him mad and he was ticked off at you. That's not the case. It's just breaking his heart. That's all it means. And, and then uh, I, I would also say in this that um, if something, you know, these are big things here when you read the list. It's, it's bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, 
along with every form of malice. So, so these are glaring things, glaring things. I, I would not be of the camp that says that you need to do this intense search to weed out every sin in your life. The truth is you have the Holy Spirit and you parents, you know, if your kids are doing something that they shouldn't be doing, you're gonna make it abundantly clear to them, we're not doing this. And so you don't need to go on this great search. You have the Holy Spirit. He will make it evident to you. Now, I say that because um, recently I watched a teaching, somebody who's in a very different camp than I would be or maybe we would be. I have a great respect for the man. He loves the Lord. We're just very different. And the whole teaching was on how Jesus went into the water to be baptized. And as he's there, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. And then it says, and remained, remained. Are you familiar with the story, by the way? So, so remained, remained. And so his whole thing is, if you want the Holy Spirit to remain, how do you do that? Well, you have to take every step in keeping with the Holy Spirit right here, not doing anything that would cause him to not remain. You don't want him to flutter away. Well, First of all, the Holy Spirit is a lot more resilient than that. And, and sadly, although I get the heart of what the man is saying, uh, it creates a neurotic faith. Like you're about to do something, anything, and he's gone like that. Parents, you would not do that to your children. And some of you have had to put up with a lot of stuff with your kids and you're still there, you're still there. So this is something you wanna be aware of. Holy Spirit, if there's something that I need to take care of it, I'll repent, I'll renounce, but don't have a neurotic faith. Don't have a neurotic faith. Hopefully that, that at least helps. Now, the bottom line of being filled with the Holy Spirit is this, write this down. I will be filled with whatever I fill myself with. I will be filled with whatever I fill myself with. So if I fill myself with sports, TV, politics, the news, whatever I'm putting in continuously, that's what I'm going to be filled with. Now, let me say this. I don't think those things are wrong. I keep up with what's going on politically. I'm somewhat involved. Um, I keep up with the news and, and things of that nature. But I don't want to be filled with those things. I want to be filled with the things of God. So what I'm putting in on a continuous basis, I found that if I get in my car and uh, immediately I turn on the talk radio and all day long I'm listening to the talk radio, that's what I'm filling myself with and that's what I'll be filled with. So it's good to catch up, check in, but make sure that you're filled with the things of God. So you need to ask, we need to ask ourselves, write this down, what am I filling myself with? What am I filling myself with? Am I filling myself with the things of God or with something else, something else? Now, another thing, and this is uh, very quickly because we're gonna talk about this in Ephesians chapter six. In Ephesians chapter six, Paul is going to say, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. And uh, praying in the spirit is going to be listed as part of our spiritual warfare. So the question is, what does that mean? Well, while Paul was ministering for three years at Ephesus, he wrote the book that we know as 1 Corinthians. He wrote that while he was in Ephesus. And when he wrote that book, he said this, the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, builds up himself. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. So he says, this, 
those who do that pray in a tongue or speak in a tongue uh, build themselves up in their spirit. So we need to be built up in our spirit and we need to be building up the, the church. Well, then Paul goes a little bit further and here's what he says. He says, if I pray in a tongue, underline my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. I won't know what my mind is praying. He says, so what is the outcome then? He says, I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. So when I pray with the spirit, I might not know what I'm praying about, but it builds me up in my spirit. We'll talk about that more when we get to Ephesians 6. But let me just say this. Praying in this way has, uh, in my personal prayer time, has transformed my prayer life and has been the most incredible blessing. But we'll talk about that when we get to Ephesians chapter six. Now, one other thing, as we kind of bring this to a close, in verse 18, he says, be filled with the spirit. Let me just read this one more time. You'll see why in a minute. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And the last line, verse 21, we'll pick up next week. When Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he was in prison, house arrest in Rome. He writes Ephesians And at the same time, he writes the book that we know as Colossians. They're both written at the same time, and they both go out, most hold together. So in Ephesians, he says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. But notice what he writes to the Colossian church at the same time. There on your outline. Let the word of Christ, underline that, richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Would you agree that being filled with the word of Christ, we would say the word of God, looks a whole lot like being filled with the Spirit? looks exactly the same. And the reason for that is you can never separate God's word from God's spirit. And then it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. To dwell means to live within. So like you dwell in your house, you live in your house. Let his word dwell within you. So the question is, is what does it look like when somebody has the word of God, the word of Christ, dwelling in them richly, how, how does that look? Well, there's this great story in Acts chapter 18. There on your outline, we want to underline a couple of things as uh, we go through this. And it says, now a certain Jew, we know he's Jewish, named Apollos, Apollos, underline that, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man came to Ephesus and he was mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent, the word there is zeal, means to be hot, boil. You could also translate it as white hot in the spirit, fervent in spirit, underline that. And he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. That would be John the Baptist who's been dead for more than 20 years at this point. 
So it, it tells us a few things. First of all, it says he's Jewish, but he's Alexandrian by birth. Now, what that would mean, that's a little clue for us. The Alexandrian Jewish people were considered as the theological liberals. Uh, they weren't like the conservative Jewish believers there in, in Jerusalem. So they were considered the, the theological liberals. You say, so, well, how liberal were they? Well, you notice um, that his parents named him Apollos. Did you see that? Do you know what Apollos means? Of Apollo, of Apollo. They named him after the pagan god Apollo. Would you say that's a little bit odd? So imagine if um, Cheryl and I had a new child and a little son, and I bring the child before the congregation. I say, congregation, God has blessed us with a new baby boy, and I just want you to welcome to our family little Buddha. Buddha's here. <laughs> And we're, we're just so excited that little Buddha Muhammad is going to grow up in this church. And, and just, you know, would you say, you know, Dan, that's kind of odd that you'd name your child Buddha Muhammad. So, so we would look at this and we would say he doesn't really have the strongest spiritual beginning. And, and yet we find that although he doesn't know anything about being baptized in the name of Jesus, he doesn't know anything about being baptized in the Holy Spirit, but it says he's speaking accurately the things concerning Jesus. But we do know that it says that he was mighty in the scriptures, mighty in the scriptures. And the result of being mighty in the scriptures was that he was fervent Zeo, boiling, white hot, uh, on fire, we would say, with the Spirit, with the Spirit. Being mighty in the Scriptures results in being fervent in Spirit, fervent, white hot, boiling. So he doesn't have all of the information, nothing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, nothing about being uh, baptized in Jesus' name, but he's mighty in the Spirit, uh, mighty in Scriptures, and it says that he's fervent in Spirit. So, being mighty in the scriptures, letting God's word dwell within you richly, will manifest in your life by being fervent in spirit. Now, this would make sense because notice what Jesus said. Jesus said it like this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Underline the words. It's the word of Christ, the word of God, that I have spoken to you are, what's that word? Spirit, spirit, and our life. So his word is spirit and his word is life. So in the Bible, you can never separate God's word and God's spirit because if it's God's spirit, it's gonna lead you right back to God's word. If it's God's word, it's gonna explain this is who the Holy Spirit really is. In church world today, there is a polarization, sadly, Part of the church says we have word, but we don't want to talk about the Holy Spirit, anything you know, like that. We just keep that out of here. We don't do that. It's all word. Well, that's kind of lopsided. On the other hand, it's all Holy Spirit, but there's not a lot of word, just all Holy Spirit. Well, the, the truth is his word and his spirit are never to be separated. If you want to be filled with God's spirit, fervent in spirit, then you need to become mighty in the scriptures. The starting point might be just to 
decide every day that I'm going to begin taking God's word in. Maybe that's reading every day. If that's all you do, that will give you a quantum leap if you're not doing that right now in your spiritual life. Maybe it's turning some things off and then being in God's word. Maybe it's a speaking God's word. It's hearing God's word. Maybe some teaching as you're driving down the road. And as we remove some things and we put in God's word, that's going to have a tremendous effect in our spiritual life. Does that make sense? And so that's a decision that we have to make. Being filled with the spirit comes as a decision, but it means to put some things aside. Those things aren't bad, but we just don't want to be filled with those things, but we want to be filled with the things of God. And when you do that, that will manifest in our lives as being fervent in spirit. We're going to pick it up right there next week as we continue to move on. Uh, After the service, there will be communion served on both sides of the platform. Did you at least find that interesting today? Good, good. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you, Lord, for their love for you, their love for your spirit, the things of God. Lord, we want to go forward in appropriateness in every area of our life. We want to represent you and uh, not using uh, things as a covering for sin, but as, as, as free people, but again, not as a covering uh, for things that we would be sinful. We want your spirit to be fervent coming out of us. And we realize that's attached to your word. And so I thank you for this congregation, their love for you, the things of God. I pray God that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus name that we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you. We'll see you next time.